Now we turn to God's Word and continue our worship, asking Him to speak to our hearts. Turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16. The book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16. And if the character of our study today had been faithful to sing that last song from his heart and to make it his life message, then the story would have ended much differently. And I would say to you today that if the words of that last song, Lord, I need you, if those words truly speak from your heart and you live by them, they will prevent you from going down the same road as our focus, as our character of study today. Well, our sermon series is David, God's man in faith and failure. We are told in Scripture, and you know this, that David was a man after God's own heart. This series of messages that will actually probably carry over into next year, Lord willing, is a lesson on what it means to have a heart for God. And all of that will unfold as we go along, what it means to have a heart for God, what it looks like in times of victory and in times also of defeat and failure. We'll look at how having a heart for God impacts our lives, our relationships, our family, our friends. We'll learn more accurately about what God values and what God blesses. But in order to learn those lessons from the life of David, we need to see the backdrop uh, to David's life, his calling, and his ministry. Last week, we set the background for the story of David by looking at the historical backdrop of what God had done in these people, how God, even in creation, was uh, raising up a worshiping community, initially Adam and Eve, later on going into their family, later on being the descendants of a man by the name of Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, who later became known as Abraham, how God grew this group of people into a, a, a large number, a large nation, and constituted them under his law at Mount Sinai. And he called them out so that they would not be like other nations, but be different from other nations, pointing other people towards the one true and living God rather than the idols that the other nations in their paganism worshipped. And God protected them. God preserved them. God planted them in the promised land, a land that is still being contended over even this morning while we are in this place of worship. Well, we're going to continue with looking at the backdrop leading up to David by today looking at the king who preceded David. And that man's name was Saul. He was the first king of Israel. And understand that a study of Saul's life is a whole series unto itself. But we're going to, we're going to move through his life pretty quickly. 
We're going to hit some high spots, not go into a great deal of depth, but I believe there's something here very applicable and very pertinent uh, to you and me today. He is the king under which David grew and matured, under which David served and ultimately had to survive. In order to understand David's heart for God, we need to take a close look at Saul, a king who had no heart for God. And I turn your attention to a Maybe a strange place to start, but I believe it shows a contrast. Actually, it is a chapter that we will look at more next week when God called and anointed David to be the next king. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 16 and the contrast in verse 13 and verse 14. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. We'll stop our reading there. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this reading is several chapters into the life and reign of King Saul. Actually, we're going to back up now in your Bibles to chapter 13. So if you want to turn a couple of pages back, and I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to be reading several verses along the way. And it's always good for your eyes to lay on those words themselves in your Bibles. If you need a Bible and don't have one, uh, page 239 in the Pew Bible in front of you. The Spirit of the Lord rushed on David. At the same time, the Spirit of the Lord departed Saul. And in his place, in rushed an evil spirit, allowed and permitted this satanic attack, this satanic attack permitted by the Lord. Now the Spirit of the Lord left Saul and rushed upon David. Understand, and don't be mistaken about this, it's not because the Spirit can only be in one place at one time. It's not because the Spirit can only be here or there on that person, but not on that person. Because we know that God is an omniscient God. He sees and knows all things. He is an omnipotent God. There are no limitations to His power. And He is an omnipresent God. He is everywhere at once. That's why He can fill you and fill me and fill every person in this congregation this morning at the same time, not just because we're in this room, but because if you are a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And He is ever-present in all who have trusted in Christ for salvation all over the world, in all of the ages. But understand this Spirit of God leaving Saul 
is not something that had to be. It's not something that, that had to be so then, and certainly it's not something that needed to be on this day, but it was a precursor of how things were going to end for Saul. By the time we get to these verses that we've read in 1 Samuel chapter 16, Saul has already committed several grave evils, two specific steps of disobedience. And we need to look at this man, how he started, where he stumbled, and how he ended up, because his story is a warning to you and me. I have just two major points to the message. Everybody say amen. <laughs> Number one, the rise of Saul. The rise of Saul. This is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 9, 10, and 11. We see him becoming the first king of Israel. And there were several things he had going for him, at least from a physical, human perspective. I'll list them for you. First of all, he was handsome. That's some place to start, is it not? Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Listen to these words. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a Benjaminite, of, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Well, from a human perspective, that is a good start for a politician, is it not? Not only was he handsome, the Bible tells us he was considerate and thoughtful. At least it appears that way, that he was a good son. If you remember the story, I'll abbreviate it and just tell it to you because we don't have time to read all the verses. But this man, this Benjaminite named Kish, said to his son Saul, Saul, our donkeys have gotten out of the pasture. There must be a fence down somewhere, right, Brother Don? Someone must have run off the road and knocked down the fence and the cows got out. Well, the donkeys got out in this case, and they were missing, and they were valuable. They were valuable to a man uh, like Kish. And so he sent his son and a servant looking for them. And they searched for several days but could not find those donkeys anywhere. They had run out of food. They had run out of, uh, of places to look, or so they thought. And so we find in verse 5, Saul saying this, When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Now, he seems to be a considerate, thoughtful, concerned son. And he was concerned about his father's worry and concern. Oh, how all parents just wish their teenage kids would think like that. Amen? 
Oh, mom and dad may be worried. Maybe I should go home early. He was considerate. He was thoughtful. Not only that, he appears to be humble. He appears to be humble. For when Samuel the prophet and priest, this last judge of Israel, before the monarchy begins with the reign of King Saul, when Samuel, who speaks for God, begins to tell Saul he is God's choice to be king, listen to what he says in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? In other words, Saul you're the top of the heap. You're the most handsome. You're the one that that God is choosing. Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is it not my clan, the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Do you hear his humility as he says, I'm a Benjaminite. And the tribe of Benjamin is like the smallest of all the 12 tribes of Israel. We have the least land. We have the least people. And not only that, but but my clan of all the clans of Benjamin, my clan is the humblest, is the least of all the clans. He sounds like Gideon. Do you remember Gideon's story? That's exactly what Gideon said when God singled him out to do a work for God. By the way, little side story, I'll just kind of maybe whet your appetite to look it up for yourself. But Kish and his son Saul were not just Benjaminites, which had kind of a notorious reputation. They were from a place called Gibeah. And if you go back in the book of Judges, some awful things took place in their homeland. I'm not saying they were guilty of it, but it would be like saying, we are from the Sodom and Gomorrah of all Israel. So he was a least likely choice from that perspective. And he was humble about that. He realized that that people didn't think highly of Benjaminites. But understand in chapter 10, the Bible tells us he was anointed. He was anointed. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince or leader over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And then skipping down to verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. He's talking about Saul now. This is before the Spirit rushed on David. The Spirit also had rushed on Saul. And you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Now I want to take just a moment to talk about this this event or this practice of anointing with oil. That's kind of a foreign idea to us today. 
uh, especially to Baptists, it's a foreign idea. And really the way that it was used in the Bible is much different than the way you hear of other people anointing with oil today. Keep in mind, there were three classes of people that were anointed with oil in the Old Testament. They were prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings. The average person in the pew, if they had pews, did not get anointed. The, the people being anointed were those that God set apart and chose for special ministry and service. Prophets, priests, and kings. Just take note, what were the offices that Jesus fulfilled? He is a prophet, he is a priest, he is a king. And he is referred to in the Bible as the anointed one, the ultimate anointed one, the one to whom all the other prophets, priests, and kings were supposed to, by their lives and by their choices, point people towards. Now, the anointing process was just taking some oil, probably not 10W40 pins oil or something like that. It would, it would have been olive oil, and it's poured upon their heads. And it's symbol. There's nothing magical about it. It symbolized, however, oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon this person. And it's why the psalmist said how precious it is when God's people dwell together in unity. What is it like? It is like the beautiful picture of the oil that was poured on Aaron, the first high priest head, as that oil ran down from his hair and on his beard and on his priestly garments. How that looked in the eyes of the people and in the eyes of God. Here was their chosen, God-chosen representative to stand between the people and God. He said that's what it's like when God's people live in unity. So this anointing symbolized the Holy Spirit. But understand, it symbolized specifically three things in the Holy Spirit coming on that person. First of all, sovereign choice. This is God's chosen person. God has set them apart. Aaron, Saul, later on David, this is God's chosen, this king or this priest or this prophet. Not only sovereign choice, but it symbolized divine empowerment. Divine enablement might be a better word because when you and I think of empowerment, we think of this. We're not talking about this kind of prowess and strength. We're talking about God's hand of blessing is going to work on them and through them. That the Holy Spirit will be their strength, their guide, and what enables them to do the work of God in the way that pleases God. And not only sovereign choice and divine empowerment, but it symbolized and it promised that there would be, as a result, some kind of supernatural outcome. That through what they do, the outcome will be the hand and the work of God. It will not be the work of flesh. 
It will not be the ingenuity of mankind, but through that divine enablement, God is going to do his work in the world. Okay? Now, Jesus was the anointed one in the Old Testament. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed, sovereign choice, divine enablement, supernatural results. But remember this, take this home with you. The book of 1 John says that you, as a child of God, you have an anointing from God. You also have been sovereignly chosen by God. God the Holy Spirit has moved in your life and he will be your strength and he will be your guide. And not only that, but believe it or not, as a result of your life, your witness, your walk of obedience to Christ, Christ will do in you and through you what you could never do in your own strength, in your own wisdom, in your own power. Does that not amaze you? That God has anointed you for his work. That yes, we are not like the Old Testament prophets or priests or kings, but we are of a kingdom of the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, and we speak for him and we do his work in this world. And so he was anointed. Also, he was given another heart. Chapter 10, verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that they, oh, how we need for God to give us another heart. In fact, if God did not give us another heart, what would we have within us? The old, stony, cold hearts. Ezekiel. That book that's so hard to read, right, Amy? The one that's your least favorite of all of the Old Testament books. I know, I know you've said it enough times to me. But in that book, he says, I'm going to take away your old stony heart, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, okay? And in the same way as God's people, we need a renewal of our hearts every single day. So he was given another heart. And not only this, but, but notice that he stood above all the rest. Above all the rest. Now, literally, he stood above, above all the rest. Did you remember that about King Saul? That back in chapter 9, verse 2 says, From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So he was tall, dark, and handsome. The ultimate politician, the, the people's choice for our first king, the one we can be proud of, the one that, that they cried out for, no doubt, God, give us a king. And that was the title of our message last week, Give Us a King. Well, guess what? The title of the message today, Behold Your King. Here he is, the best, the best man has to offer. The one who is going to fight your battles for you. Isn't that what they wanted? The one to be their hero. And in just a few chapters away, Lord willing, two Sundays from today, we're going to find that one who stood shoulders above all the rest as a great warrior, cowering and hiding in his tent. Because guess what? Those pagan Philistines had an even taller warrior. And his name was Goliath. Don't let me get ahead of myself. 
chapter 10, verse 24. He was above all the rest. Listen to what it says in 10, 24. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Behold your king. Long live the king. And I say to you, listen folks, what a start. What a start. Seldom, if ever, has any leader had such an impressive, impressive start to their reign, to their rule, to their ministry. He was handsome. He was considerate and thoughtful, a good son. He was humble, it appeared. He was anointed, and the Lord had given him a new heart. And he was someone who always stood out in a crowd, not just because of his size, but because of his charisma, because of his attractiveness, because of his magnetism. As I've said, he made the perfect politician. To top it all off, when his reign was first put to the test in battle, he was victorious over the Ammonites, then initially over the Philistines, who, however, are going to be a thorn in his side from now on, but also over the Moabites and over the Amalekites. And if the story were to end there, it would be a good story. It still is a good story but a sad story, and one full of warning for you and me. Because there is a principle taught in the Bible, exemplified by men like Saul, emphasized by Jesus himself in the New Testament, and the principle can be summed up in words like this. You've heard me say it before. More important than how you start is what? how you finish. More important than how you start is how you finish. And folks, the challenge from Scripture and from me to you is this. Finish well. Finish well. Finish well. I have many acquaintances in ministry. I have a few dear friends in ministry. We don't talk often because, well, we just don't find it necessary. But when we do talk, when we do talk, always the challenge is finish well. Finish well. We don't know where the finish line is in our lives. God doesn't give us that insight. But we want to finish not, not falling out, not stumbling, but to finish strong. I have a picture on my computer that I look at, I suppose, at least once every week. It's specifically pertinent right now in the time of the World Series where my team, the Texas Rangers, are still standing. Not sure after last night, but so far. And it's a picture 
of a player for the Chicago Cubs who's just hit a walk-off home run. I may have had it on the screen here one time for you. And it shows him rounding third base. It was a big game. It was a big hit. It won. The fans in the stands in the background are going crazy. And he is rounding third base with his arms out just like he was flying. And he is tagging third base. And you look down the baseline, and there are all of his teammates just waiting to greet him, smiles on their faces, jumping up and down. And folks, that's just what it's like for you and me, that we're rounding third. We're almost home. And God's people, and most of all, Jesus awaits with arms outstretched, waiting to receive you into that place. I cannot look at that picture without thinking about that day. More important than how you start is how you finish. Well, here is the point of warning. Point number two, his fall. We saw his rise, now his fall. I don't know who it was that coined the poem, but how true it is. Some men die by the shrapnel. Some men die by the flames. But most men die inch by inch, playing silly little games. What happened to Saul? If you remember his story, the very last chapter of the book of 1 Samuel, you read about Saul in a day of battle when his army was defeated. How he chose, rather than being captured, he chose to fall on his sword. He told his armor bearer and his servant to thrust him through with his sword, but his servant would not do that. And so Saul chose to deliberately fall on his own sword. I want to suggest to you, long before Saul took his own life physically, Saul took several steps that basically caused him to fall on his sword spiritually. Let me list them for you and read a few verses. This begins in chapter 13. Saul was presumptuous. Saul was presumptuous. You read about this in chapter 13, specifically in verses 5 or so through verse 14. I'll tell you what, it's a lengthy reading. Let me tell you the story. Trust me on this that I'm telling you the straight, the straight scoop, okay? Saul's army has started to desert out of fear. They had whipped the Philistines once, but now the Philistines have really organized themselves and they greatly outnumbered the men of God. And they had gathered and mustered together at Michmash and were about to chase down Saul and his army. Saul is at Gilgal, a place where spiritual stuff took place in the Bible. And Saul had sent for Samuel, the prophet, the priest, to come and offer burnt offerings. 
and offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people. And Samuel said, I'll be there in seven days or less, but wait on me for seven days. When the seventh day came and the sun rose on that day, it was day number seven, and Samuel had not come yet, but he still had the rest of the day. Saul became impatient, and he acted presumptuously. In verse 9 of that chapter, he says, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And he had no sooner presumed upon himself to do the work of a priest for which he had never been chosen and never been anointed and never been led to do. That act of presumption caused him to fall out of favor with God and with Samuel. And just soon after the offering of those sacrifices, Samuel shows up on day seven to do his priestly work, and he sees what has taken place. And Saul basically offers this explanation. You had not gotten here. My army was deserting me. The Philistines were coming. These are his words. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel told him, because of this, your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be, that is the first time that phrase enters the pages of Scripture. The Lord is seeking out a man after his own heart with the understanding, Saul, that ain't you. You've got a wrong heart. Your heart is in the wrong place. He thought that it was okay for him under the circumstances to do this presumptuous act. Listen to me. Just like you and I are sometimes guilty of doing a right thing, but doing it perhaps in the wrong way, in the wrong time, for the wrong reasons, because circumstances seem to compel us to do that thing. And I'm going to tell you, if it's obedient, disobedience under the best of circumstances, listen to me, it is disobedience under the most difficult of circumstances. Disobedience is disobedience. This is what the book of Proverbs says in chapter 16. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way to death. The way that seems right to your flesh is going to be the wrong way. This is what, Psalm, uh, what the psalmist David said in Psalm 19, very likely with this very event in mind. King David, a man after God's own heart, said, Lord, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless 
and innocent of great transgression. Well, King Saul was a man who allowed presumptuous sins to have dominion over him. And he was guilty of great transgression. He was presumptuous. Now turn to chapter 15. I'll point out two or three things in quick succession here. Not only was he presumptuous, he was blatantly disobedient. We see him disobedient in the offering of the sacrifices, but now he is disobedient in another way. And if you remember, the Amalekites were coming against God's people. They were wicked people. For 400 years, they had been bent on the destruction of Israel, just like there are those in our world today. And listen to me, I'm sad to say, even in this country today, even walking the halls of power in Washington today that are also bent on the destruction of Israel. The Amalekites hated Israel and for 400 years had hated them, wanting to destroy them completely. And they came against God's people once again. And Saul and Israel had to go out and do battle against them. And the Lord said through Samuel, God is going to give you the victory. But here's what you must do. You must destroy the Amalekites completely. Not just their armies. Not just their men. But their women, their children, their cattle, their flocks everything that has the capital letter A on the front of their sweatshirts, you do away with them. The Amalekites have got to go. Have got to go. That may seem harsh to you and harsh to me, but God is pretty jealous about his own glory and about pagan people who will fight against the people of God for the sake of their pagan gods made of wood and stone, idolatrous people that lead men, women, boys, and girls to hell. God has little patience with them. So Saul went out to battle the Amalekites. You know the story. God gave them a great victory. And we take up our reading in chapter 15 with verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Did you catch the name of the king of the Amalekites? Agag. Agag. Now, let me just kind of, and I'll go, this is really pertinent. I'm not just chasing a rabbit here, but follow me on this. Some years later, 550 or so to be exact, God's people are going to be living in Persia. They were in Babylonian captivity. Then the Babylonians fell to the Persians. The Persians inherited them. And they were in Persia in bondage. And you remember that there was 
the story of a Jewish woman, a Jewish girl that became queen of Persia. What was her name? Esther. You've been to Branson. You've seen her in person, right? Yeah, you can see her in person over there in Branson. And you remember the story in Esther's day, how there was a wicked man by the name of Haman. And Haman, all these years later, was also bent on the destruction of the Jewish people. In fact, he manipulated things in such a way and had influence on the king in such a way that he got permission to have all the Jews in Persia killed. Do you remember that the Bible says Haman was an Agagite? An Agagite. Haman was a descendant of King Agag, who was a wicked Amalekite living 550 years before. God had told Saul, you destroy that man, you kill him and all of his family, and all of those of the Amalekites, you destroy them. And had Saul done what God told him to do, you would not have the quandary, you would not have the circumstances over 500 years later over in Persia, miles away of someone trying to destroy God's people. There was a reason God told Saul to do what he was to do. Beloved, listen to me. God has his reasons, and he doesn't have to explain them to you and me. God wants, wants obedience from us. And sometimes the obedience may seem unusual. It may even seem difficult to do. It may even seem to be purposeless, it may not seem to have any great reasoning behind it. It may not make sense to you and me, but understand, we have no idea of the other things going on around us now or many years from now that your obedience today will make a difference for eternity in the lives of some people. That's why he says, Later on in this chapter, it is better to obey than it is to offer sacrifices. So he was disobedient very quickly. He was proud. Proud, verse 12 tells us in chapter 15, that Saul stopped at Mount Carmel. That's where Elijah faced off against the prophets of Baal, where fire fell from heaven, a great a great victory uh, earlier in, in the story of God's people. And we find that here King Saul stops at Carmel. And what does he do? He builds a monument to himself. Well, we could talk all day about pride. I've told you it's the gateway to all sin. It was the first sin of Lucifer in heaven. Pride caused him to rebel against the Father and try to dethrone God. When he fell and became Satan, 
the enemy of our souls. He used pride to appeal to Adam and Eve. And pride is your biggest problem today, and it's my biggest problem. It seeks self above all else. Not only was he proud, he was in denial. He was in denial. When Saul came face to face with Samuel in chapter 15, verse 13 and 14, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I have obeyed what you told me that God wanted me to do. One of the great questions in all the Bible, one of the greatest. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears? and the lowing of the oxen that I hear. If you have obeyed the Lord, why is it? I'm hearing sheep, and I'm hearing oxen. You have kept alive what you should have destroyed. You are in denial. You have not obeyed the Lord. It is the natural result. It is as natural to you and me as breathing to deny our shortcomings, our failures, to refuse to see the real state of our obedience and the condition of our souls. But understand, if you are not willing to step out of denial in true confession and repentance to God, you can't even be saved. You can't even be saved, let alone please God with your life. Number five, he blamed others for his sin. This is what deniers do. They blame others for their shortcoming. If you were to pick up in chapter 15 with verse 15 and go down several verses, Saul said, they, pointing to his army, they have brought these sheep and cattle back from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best. And he said, I was going to sacrifice them to the Lord. This is very telling. The Lord, your God, Samuel. Twice in this passage, Saul is going to refer to God as Samuel's God. You know why? Because as much as it looked like he was and was supposed to be, God was not truly Saul's God. Saul was following the God of Saul and of Saul's will. Samuel tells him, listen to this, verse 23, for rebellion, for rebellion, by the way, you know what that word is in some other translations? Stubbornness. Stubbornness. Oh, I'm just stubborn. I come from a family of stubborn people. For stubbornness, which is called rebellion here, is like the sin of divination. You know what that is? That's witchcraft. When you are stubborn to the will of God for your life, that's just as bad as being guilty of witchcraft. And not only that, but presumption, 
That is to presume that I can do what I want to do in spite of what God says. And presumption is like iniquity. You know what that word has reference to? Moral impurity. So presumption is like moral impurity and idolatry. Idolatry. Well, we need to finish. Let me just give you these other two things to fill in your blanks. Number six, he was envious of God's blessing on others. You can read about this in chapter 18, how Saul became very angry at David. God had given the Israelites a great victory over the Philistines, their perpetual enemies. And so the women of the villages were singing praises, and they made up a little chorus. And it went something like this. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has struck down his ten thousands. And guess what? Although David, a man after God's own heart, who is still at this point just a lowly warrior, though David was loyal to this king, loyal to Israel, one of the greatest weapons Israel had in their army, led to victory that Saul got to enjoy and got to experience, Saul became angry. Why? He was displeased that someone may have more credit than himself. He was even earlier on displeased and angry at his own son, Jonathan, and on at least one occasion tried to kill his own son because he was jealous and angry. And that anger led to number seven. He became angry and murderous. And from chapters 18 to 31, we read about the many efforts he made to try to kill David, to try to murder David by putting him in situations that no man should ever be able to escape, by throwing spears at him when he thought that he was doing, uh, he was, well, when David was there to help him, to hunt him down with his armies in the wilderness. He sought to kill David. What does the Bible tell us? What does Jesus tell us about anger, about the sin of murder? The law says, thou shalt not murder. Jesus said, if you are angry with your brother without a cause, you are guilty of murder in your heart. Presumptuous, disobedient, proud, in denial, blaming others for our shortcomings, being envy, envious of God's blessing on others, even when we benefit from it and becoming angry and murderous, if not in reality physically, in our hearts, mentally and emotionally. That, my friend, is the path of spiritual suicide. Father, thank you for this warning today from your word. Father, Saul was your choice. And if he had done the right things, he would have been blessed. 
and God's people would have been blessed. Father, he committed suicide in his heart. Help us not to do the same thing. Help us to realize as good as we are and as we think we are, when we are envious of those that you're blessing, when we presume it's not that big a deal not to obey you completely, that we are on and in risk of the same journey, a journey of spiritual suicide. May we have a heart truly devoted and focused on you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.